This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly perusal of pop culture from The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. And I'm Jelena Sofronievich. On this week's show, we are thrilled to welcome the fantastic British science fiction writer Adrian Tchaikovsky, author of the breakout hit novel Children of Time, the one with the intelligent spiders, plus its follow-up Children of Ruin, the one with the intelligent squids, and a vast catalogue of imaginative fiction. What makes him tick? What can contemporary science fiction tell us about the world we live in now? And what has all this got to do with German (laughs) hip-hop? Plus, we'll be looking at Elizabeth Handmaid's Tale Moss in the adaptation of Shining Girls by Lauren Bukes, surreal, time-twisting drama on Apple TV+. We'll be discovering why the late hip-hop producer Jay Diller is up there with Debussy and James Brown in terms of musical significance, and we'll be disappearing into cosmic transcendence with a new album from Norwegian electronic explorers Royksop. Oh, that's Ogme, Pardere Ukens Utgava of Kulturbunkerin. That means all that and more on this edition of the Culture Bunker in Norwegian. the show and it's a big culture week for Andrew and Yellowner because we finally got to see Jerusalem in the actual theatre didn't we with Mark Rylance and Mackenzie Crook what did you think I really enjoyed it so I should preface this with the fact that Jerusalem tickets are like buses for me I was trying and trying and trying and then lots came along all at once this week Mm. Um, but I was fortunate to talk to Jez Butterworth last week who talked a lot about the influences of the Simpsons on his own theatre and playwriting Mm. and I was really interested by Jerusalem because I think it speaks to something quite mythic about Englishness there's an idea there that's very individual that doesn't really connect to anything on a state level or a political level it's something that is defined one-on-one and I think that the play captures that really well. The truth of the English is running around, getting drunk around a caravan, fighting, arguing and then ultimately having to confront the truth of your own character. I've got to say, I mean, like, I, I am the original never goes to the theatre guy but I you absolutely are. loved it. Being late with everything as usual, this is a 10-year-old British classic but it's just that the mixture of the kind of quasi-pagan and the modern British kind of eBay mo- mobile phone culture was brilliant and it's just really funny. I mean, we would say get a ticket but of course you cannot you cannot they are like you can steep. refresh every single day I think they are still releasing some £10 tickets of a morning but you've yes. got to be in there and you've got to be snappy which is one of my issues with the performance as a whole but I think that Mark Rylance and Mackenzie Crook just absolutely carry it and there mm. are some scenes that are just hilarious the section at the start with the Spice Girls saga that starts with Spooky Spice and ends with a Mars bar or a Snickers bar getting lobbed at another character is just brilliant well I'm going to always going to love anything that starts with Invaders Must Die by the Prodigy so we're going to add that to the playlist 
Now, the Culture Bunker is a three-hander this week as our guest Luke Turner has been stricken by COVID. Get well soon, Luke. We will have you back as soon as you're well and not hacking into our microphones. But listeners, don't forget, you can support the podcast and help us keep going by supporting us on Patreon. Contribute as little as £2 a month and you'll get every show from the whole Bunker universe early without adverts, plus some enticing merchandise too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. A few years ago, I was going on holiday, so I put out the traditional Facebook call, What Should I Read on the Beach? And about half a dozen people immediately said, Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. And they added things like, stop reading what you're reading now and read this, or this has got you written all over it. And I don't usually read science fiction, but I loved this. They were absolutely right. The book concerns a planet which humans attempt to terraform for future habitation by uplifting the intelligence of primates with a special virus. But it all goes a bit wrong, and instead we follow the evolution of a spider society in parallel to the decline of humanity into barbarism. It was totally gripping, it was even morally quite uplifting, and it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 2016. Children of Time introduced me to Adrian Tchaikovsky's mysterious and terrifyingly prolific world, where the science fiction architecture of world-building, extreme ideas and spectacle is all in place, but the characterization and the sense of humour are of a completely different order entirely. These are books full of real people doing identifiable, empathisable things, even if the, some of them happen to be spiders or squid. It's science fiction for people who would never read science fiction, as well as for people like me who do. Adrian is joining us now from Cosmic Far-Flung Leads. Hello, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, we met in the pub in Leeds after one of our Oh God, What Now shows, and I am afraid I fanboyed you hopelessly. I genuinely love these books. They are the best discovery of recent years. How would you describe to the layperson what you do, You know, maybe to somebody who might still somehow continue science fiction, could c- consider science fiction to be the realm of zap guns and tentacled aliens? Well, I mean, I do have my share of zap guns and tentacled aliens. <laughs> I have quite a broad net I throw. So Children of Time is an example of my kind of what I consider my harder science fiction work. And mostly what I tend to do is take the alien, take a a variety of different non-human perspectives and try and bring them to the reader in a way that is is relatable. So I've done spiders and I've done octopuses and I've done, um, so there's the main character of Dogs of War is a sort of an enhanced cyborg dog and i'm moving into kind of actual genuine alien perspectives as well in some of my more more recent work but it's i think the main thing that people seem to seize on with a lot of my writing is i can bridge that gap between the genuinely weird alien perspective and my mostly human readership i think that's what i realized what I love not about just your books, but actually about the genre in general, it's like your, it is your opportunity to touch the completely unknowable. What we used to get from religion, touching the face of God, we, we, you know, to, to understand how an alien mind could possibly work, even a theoretical one, or an actual existing alien mind like that of a squid or a spider. Your books made me realise that that's actually why I love this stuff. It's about meeting something else. It's what science fiction can do basically there isn't really another genre out there that has the freedom to to play with ideas in that kind of way and so why not push the ideas to the limit i mean i I still feel there's kind of a holy grail out there for me as a writer which is to write a completely absolutely alien perspective in a comprehensible way and i'm kind of i'm doing a sort of a zeno's paradox approach on it and getting slightly closer with everything i write i think but at some point i will attempt that 
I sort of mentioned earlier how people have said that Children of Time in particular, which I'm surprised you call it one of your harder science fiction books, it's a very, very accessible book. It's full of characters who you come to love, admire. And again, many of them are spiders. You feel, you will really feel, <laughs> you will cry when a spider dies when you read this book. How do you feel about that compliment that you might not like science fiction, but you will like this? Is it a backhanded compliment? Is it also a forehanded compliment? I mean, I guess there are probably people out there who genuinely just would not like any kind of science fiction, and they probably wouldn't like this because it is definitely science fiction. But I think a lot of people are possibly trained to feel that science fiction is not for them just because of the examples of it they run into, that they feel that they could, you know, they, they want something that is serious and thought provoking and has depth of character and gives them that kind of emotional journey maybe that they're used to from, um, I guess, what you'd think of as a more mainstream lit- literature journey without realising there's absolutely nothing in the concept of science fiction that precludes that. So you, you have science fiction that does all of that. It's simply that th- that those books will also be pushing conceptual boundaries that other genres might not get get the chance to do. But it doesn't mean it has to detract from any other sense. It's not, you know, you don't have a little budget of of... of sort of literary pounds you're spending on this and some of it goes on the science fiction and some of it goes on the emotional journey it's all very complimentary hopefully what uh, people in that position are finding is actually yes they they do actually quite like science fiction if it's science fiction that's delivering what they want out of just the general concept of a book in 2020 a book doors of eden won the sideways award for alternate histories and i wonder for you do you think of sci-fi as a means of understanding history in different perspectives then do you think that's a way of drawing more people into the genre one of the big misconceptions about science fiction is that it predicts the future. Sometimes it does, but it's not actually terribly good at it. What it's very, very good at is commenting on the present and examining the past. And because you are frequently taking that present or past out of context into a fantastical setting or a far future setting, it gives you a lot more freedom to examine things without getting bogged down in basically people's real lives. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it is possibly one of the very best tools to examine any kind of, um, historical setting, uh, a, you know, any kind of what ifs. I mean, look, just looking at a, another, another Clark winner, um, Colson Whitehead's Underground Railroad is a really good example of someone taking, uh, the freedoms of genre writing to look at very, very real historical periods and, um, incidents. You have a very particular view of the male humans in your books. In Children of Time, also Cage of Souls, which is a fantastic standalone book about an existential prison in a swamp at the end of time. In each of these books, the male human protagonist is fairly useless, often quite lazy. He's almost hardly a protagonist at all. I identified very strongly with these guys who were buffeted around (laughs) by events. What generates this idea that even in 50,000 years' time, in a parallel future, men will still be a bit useless? (laughs) So I, I have had some quite heated discussions with other writers about the idea of a passive protagonist, because... There's certainly a particular branch of received wisdom to say that you you, know, you can't or at least shouldn't do it. But you're absolutely right. A lot of my main characters are more observers than doers. So um, Stefan Advani in The Cage of Souls, pretty much his, his superpower is not being places when things are happening, which is why he's still alive through most of the book. Holston Mason in Children of Time is quintessentially an observer. He is there to be the character who is constantly trying to catch up with what's going on so that we, the reader, can find out what's going on. Um, and although in uh, Shards of Earth, Idris 
does stuff, he tends to do stuff only when he's absolutely forced to. And his preferred mode is to just not have anything to do with anything that's going on because he's kind of done his bit at the, at the start of the book. He's a, he's a war veteran who's trying desperately to be retired. That is a lot more palatable than the kind of the, the, the traditional science fiction, two-fisted, guns-blazing, sort of Duke Nukem-style hero. With the sort of character who is trying not to be involved, you have a lot more time to work out what's going on and to stop and think. And also, because I tend to be very much about sympathizing with the other rather than just shooting it in the head, those are far more useful protagonists to have. <laughs> I mean, Adrian, you are terrifyingly prolific, as I've mentioned. You made your name with a 10-part series called Shadows of the Apt, set in a universe where humans have the attributes of different insect species and magic is real and works. You now have several parallel series on the go at once, each of which is really throws the ball of world building very, very far towards, towards the boundary. Firstly, what is the experience of writing this stuff like for you as an individual? You've got multiple worlds on the go at the same time. And also, I mean, do these ideas run away with you? Because it seems like you can't find a group of ideas without wanting to write a four or five part series around it. I actually, I have a variety of different kind of lengths and modes I work to. Um, I mean, one, one of the things is writing a series is actually becoming less of a fashionable thing in publishing at the moment. Publishers are more interested in standalone books. I still tend to write long novels, but at the same time, there's been a resurgence of the um, the novella form, especially in the States, which is... 30 to 40,000 words long and which I found to be absolutely perfect for exploring a single idea very thoroughly without having a lot of extra sort of characters and plots and so forth to that you would normally have in a hundred thousand word book. And so, yes, the ideas run away with me. Yes. the um, But frequently it's more that I've got so many different things I want to write. I mean, I've got a, I've got a, a, a file of, of ideas that currently has about, 12 novels worth of stuff that I may or may not get to at some point, um, which I just go back to every time an opportunity comes up to pitch something to a, to a different publisher. Each one of those ideas kind of will come with a kind of an implied length. So I'll be able to see one of that, right, this one I want to just do 40,000 words and explore that concept. This one I can embed in a larger plot and make a, make a novel of with the, um, the final architecture series, starting with uh, Shards of Earth. Um, the second one of which, which is actually literally just been released, I think. That one definitely had to be a series of books because I knew I wanted to do a whole kind of a history of a sequence of events rather than just looking at a snapshot in time. The final architecture books are, again, astonishing in that we kind of join after effectively Earth has been destroyed for reasons we find out bit by bit. One of the great aspects of it is that uh, the human race has engineered a race of female warriors to protect them. And then when the threat arrives, it's far, far too big. And you then get to see sort of sexual politics played out in another way, in a parallel way to the way it was in, in the matriarchal spider society in Children of Time. This is something that you come back to, transposing patriarchy into alternate futures. When I was redoing my A-levels at college, uh, I had a my a very, very feminist uh, communication studies teacher who basically introduced me to the idea of maybe you don't just need to write about men all the time, um, which I've kind of tried to take and run with ever since. And I'm always trying to kind of actively diversify my, my societies and my cast of characters, both in terms of um, race, gender, sexuality, and obviously species, because I have the freedom to do it. So with the the Parthenon, who are the Parthenogenetic Society of 
female warriors. It's very much drawing on that um, a very common science fiction concept of space marines. And you know we have you know, games workshop has space marines and various other settings. They've got the you know here are the here are the, the perfect warriors. They're turned out of vats. They can you, know, you have as many of them as you want, and they go and they fight. But they're always men in their setting. They're always going to great big beefy men running around in great big suits of armor. And if you're looking at cloning, um, especially parthenogenetic cloning in nature, it's it's female line stuff. That's how it works because effectively because of the whole xy chromosome thing women have kind of a more complete chromosome that is less susceptible to various genetic things such as hemophilia color blindness and various things like that so it kind of makes more sense if you're going to have your big society of cloned warrior people scientifically women make a lot more sense than men and that was just kind of my my starting point and i think well that's okay and then once you have them how do the rest of humanity react to the fact that they're suddenly there and especially after the war when they're still there but you don't have the big threat that you were hiding behind them from and so by the time the shards of earth picks up the relationship between the parthenon and the rest of humanity is very very strained to say the least mm. you should see the folks on yonder in the studio who's going yeah you see women are better at this <laughs> it makes me fi- think of a yeah a sci-fi version of charlotte perkins gilman's herland right and i'm a fan of that okay. <laughs> So you've got a third book in the Children of Time series called Children of Memory scheduled to come out this year, maybe next year. Your challenge is to tell us about it without spoiling it in any way. Oh, blimey. It's particularly hard to do with that book because I guess the thing to say is that book is about a mystery. Um, it's picking up the spacefaring culture that by the end of Children of Ruin is, is has grown into quite a sort of a cosmopolitan mishmash of different species and perspectives. And Children Memory is about them running into something that they do not initially understand in any way, despite the fact that they are sort of you know massively advanced by our, our current standards and have all of these different perspectives. They run into something that they kind of break against initially, and it's exploring that from the point of view of the middle of that sort of breaking up and fracture. We always ask guests to bring in a tune of current favorite record and before the show i asked you what music you like and you said german hip-hop how does german (laughs) hip-hop speak to a former lawyer science fiction writer who lives in leeds it's the weirdest thing um so a lot of it i've come to through um music videos for german pop and hip-hop because they seem to be having a real renaissance of really bizarre weird visuals so i mean um it's uh bands like seed and dykekind and um Algotoa. I mean, I'm a, I'm a child of the '80s, and the sort of the song topics and the song visuals for me are really reminiscent of the sort of explosion of really weird, imaginative kind of as well, like non love song music that you were getting in the British pop scene in the um, you know b- back in the '80s. There's a song by Seed called Lastigan, which is ostensibly on the surface of the song, it's about telling someone just to you know forget about a girl who's left him. And the video is about leaving a planet that's being destroyed, done in the <laughs> style of a, a kind of a um, comic strip. It's it's mind-blowingly weird, and it's absolutely fantastic. And because the way my mind works, I once I've seen the video, when I hear the song, that's very much the kind of the, the ambience that's going on in my head. Do you write with music on? Yes, although when I write, I write with um, instrumental music because um, if I've, if there are lyrics going on in the background, that tends to get in the way uh, in the way of my 
kind of thinking about dialogue and so forth. So what kind of instrumental music? Uh, uh, orchestral, classical, electronic? Um, so it's, it's usually it's um, film score and increasingly because um, it's an area of music that's developing very, very rapidly, um, computer game score. Well, as someone who's binging their way through my Falco box set as we speak, I very much approve this message. Adrian, what track have you chosen? So I've chosen a track by uh, an artist called Alligatoa, which is, and I'm going to try and pronounce this properly, Music ist keine Lösung, which translates as music is no solution. And as with the other one I was talking about, this is very much prompted by the incredible video. The video is... The song is from the point of view of the personification of a musician's sort of self-doubt. And so you have the, you, in, in, through the video, you have the musician going about trying to produce music with a message, a kind of anti-war message. And you have this kind of hideously dressed bowler-hatted character just standing next to him, bringing him down and destroying absolutely everything he does. And it's amazing because, frankly, you know, as a... As a writer, there's a ton of stuff in that song, in that video, that absolutely nails it. The, the, all the all the little insecurities that get to you are completely on display there. Well, let's make the listeners also insecure. We're going to, because we're going to play a bit of it. This is Alligatoa with Music ist keine Lösung. Little clip on the show, and we'll put the full thing on our playlist, which, of course, you can get the links in the show notes. Now, shining girls are bright young women who burn with potential. But what happens when someone seeks to put out their light for good? The series Shining Girls stars Elizabeth Moss as Kirby Mazraki, a newspaper archivist whose journalistic dreams are stifled after an assault that leaves her in a reality in flux. She is also one of the 10 executive producers, along with the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio. The series premieres on Apple TV Plus today. Let's listen to the trailer. Things aren't how they should be. It starts with little things. And then big things. And nobody remembers anything different. There are multiple women dead over multiple decades. He's the one connecting them. There'll be more. I don't know how. But he's been watching me since I was a kid. He's everybody. He's nobody. He's all the time. Why are you doing this? How are you doing this? Just because something hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't. We're all connected. Things change for me just like that. And then it happens again and again and again. What's his name? Who's 
the man who visits you. Now, Elizabeth Moss was dubbed the queen of peak TV by Vulture with stand-up performances in The Handmaid's Tale, Mad Men and The West Wing. Andrew, you're a resident TV buff. Does her performance here live up to your serial expectations? I think she's great in it. I think what what I really like about this show is that she, like we, are lost in a world of confusion Mm. that is all the more confusing for being very, very familiar. The conceit is that Kirby's world is changing. And I don't mean in the sense that all of our worlds are changing, in that she will literally pick up a pen, start to write with it, and when she puts it down, it'll become a pencil. She will step into a car that's being driven by... I mean, these don't, these, this is the sort of thing that happens. She will, for instance, step into a car that's driven by a man and then the driver will turn around and it'll be a woman. She will go back to her home and discover that she doesn't live there anymore. We are unaware at this stage, because I'm two episodes in, I think Adrian's watched one more than me, whether this is an artefact of some brain damage that's been done to her in the course of mm. the attack or whether she really is in some kind of shuffling deck of cards of different realities that she is falling through. It's absolutely gripping. We are ostensibly involved in a murder mystery here. The shining girls of the title are being killed by someone. We don't know why. And we also don't know how because the shifting kind of time perspectives, the second episode, without giving too much away, there is a kind of stalking episode where time begins to behave in such a strange way that it itself becomes the locus of the horror and the tension that we're watching. Mm. Being a Doctor Who fan, I was massively reminded of Blink, where normal objects begin to behave in a terrifying manner, not by attacking you, but by simply signifying something they can't possibly signify. I think this is a fantastic show, and I'm loving it. And I can see Adrian nodding on the Zoom screen in the corner there. Yeah, so I... I... Some considerable time ago, so the details are a little fuzzy, I did read the book that this mm. is based on. Um, I was going to Lauren, ask you about this. Uh, Lauren Bukes kind of exploded onto the science fiction scene just about when I was starting to go to conventions. Um, her book, Zoo City, had won, I think, the British Science Fiction Award. And this was one of the, I think this this may have been the next book she she brought out. I remember really enjoying the book at the time. I have really been enjoying the 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 series. It does such a good job at creeping up on you with the the weirdness. I mean, so the first time you get one of these odd shifts in the in the in the early episode, it could absolutely be someone's mistake. It could be someone the 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 person she's talking to might just be gaslighting her. It's you know, it's a work colleague. There, she's obviously got a bit of an antagonistic relationship with her workplace as a whole, and so it kind of passes leaving and. It's almost up to you whether you want to decide, well, that was a weird thing or, no, that's just evidence of her own sort of inner, inner, inner struggles. But it builds and it keeps building. And suddenly in, in the, in the, by the third episode, you're starting to get the – because as part of the, part of the ongoing investigation that she's, that she's involved in, you're starting to get the, wait a minute, but if that is you – know, if we found that piece of evidence there, then how does that make any sense? Because it – directly contradicts where that thing is from and it's you know it, it's just um it's it's starting to really gather momentum by by that point in the in the story and it's also very much not an off the peg alternate universe or alternate timeline explanation you know if you've read or watched a lot of this stuff you can quite often spot what's coming can't you and i have no idea where i am on this and i absolutely love it for that reason <laughs> mm. i think it's really interesting that trade-off between the ambiguous time travel elements of it. And having not read the book, I'd be interested to hear whether the time travel part is something that's a bit stronger within it. Because if you read the blurbs about the series, it talks a lot about how we're travelling between sort of 1930s post-depression Chicago and the 1990s. But I think that actually the series is a lot more 
nuanced, a lot more subtle than that. There is a lot left to your own imagination. But I think it is also grounded in quite matter-of-fact events. We see these medical examinations in the search for hard evidence to prove the attack. And I found those scenes especially not just ambiguous and confusing, but very haunting and skin-crawling because we're watching, as you said, reality shift through her eyes. What did you both think? And do you think that as much as this is something that's set in the 90s, it actually is commenting quite strongly on victim culture and sort of police culture today? I found it really unnerving in the sense that you're placed... You are, you know, Elizabeth Moss is your proxy as a person who is coming unmoored from the world as a result of a violent act, right? She, This is not innate to her. She has been, her moorings have been clipped. She has been, you know, shoved out of the reality that she is comfortable with and is having to deal with not just the fact that the world is not making sense around her, but she can't explain it to those she loves. And when she says things like, the world does not make sense and I cannot get a grip on it. They take that as a metaphor. She's talking about it in actuality. She literally can't yeah. get a grip on, on what's around her. And um, I, I think as our own reality accelerates and makes less and less sense and things we thought were inconceivable even 18 months ago and now on the news every single night, yes, it's very, um, very hard to identify again mm. on that one. I think it really speaks to as well how the burden of proof is so often placed on victims, typically yeah. women in these crimes. Although she's struggling to keep a grip on reality, at one point she proclaims, I think it's at the end of the first episode, that it's not an impulse, it's what happened to me. It's the only record I have and it's the only one that matters. And as she's learning about these other murders and how they're connected to her attacks, she decides to team up with one of the other reporters on the team, Dan Velasquez, who's played by Vagnamora, to work on the case. Philip Sue is also in it, who some of you might recognise as the first Eliza in Hamilton. What did you make of the wider cast, Adrian? Uh, I think I think they all do an ex- excellent job. I mean, it's to the extent that one of my flaws watching things, certainly kind of um, horror, thrillers, suspense shows, is I get very, very um, into it. I have I, I get kind of very empathically sort of connected to the characters. And, I spent <laughs> the three episodes of Watch that I basically had spent a lot of them just kind of on the edge of my seat, just desperate for bad things not to happen to the characters I was identifying with. And yep. you mentioned that you're really, um, you find this kind of show is very immersive. As I mentioned, Shining Girls is both set and it's also produced in Chicago. What did you make of the setting and look of the show? Did it swallow you whole? I got into the location very, very quickly. It didn't feel to me like somewhere that was leaning very heavily on kind of unusual local traditions or anything like that to build its setting because um, I caught myself thinking that it was set in the UK, weirdly. Um, Oh, that's interesting. And then I had to remind myself, no, no, it's absolutely in the States and the book was set in the States. And I don't know where I'd got that from, but it, it, it didn't feel to me like a particularly foreign locale, even though it absolutely was. For me, the setting is the setting that's more important is the time setting, which is that it's in the early 1990s. It's 1992, yeah. which means there is no internet to get in the way of the story and the excitement. There's no kind yeah. of she works at a newspaper archive. That means physically moving stuff around and physically discovering things and hiding objects. You know, set in the present day, as with all manner of thrillers now, and it would have been an awful lot of boring sitting at computers, which would have robbed a lot of the suspense, I think, from this. In that sense, it reminds me a lot of a film we've spoken about on the podcast before, Censor, Mm. in that it really captures that time and it makes use of the fact that certain events could only happen at that time. Yeah, yeah. But for me, it's really interesting to hear you both say that because I think it is very American. I was especially struck by a restaurant scene in the first episode, which perfectly imitates the look of Edward Hopper's infamous painting, Nighthawks, Mm. with its colours, which is perhaps one of the most recognisable American artworks that is. And for me, that kind of notion of 
timeliness only helps it to transcend the story more widely. Mm. But I want to come back um, to what you were just saying, Adrian, about the book, because Boyk said that she couldn't set a time-travelling novel in South Africa because, in her words, apartheid would have overwhelmed everything else she wanted to do with the novel. What do you think about that? Do you think that there are certain experiences, universal kind of experiences, that can only be told in certain settings? I think that that's that must certainly be true, especially if she's writing a book that's intended to be export, exported beyond South Africa, because at that point there is so much going on that is effectively a big, big story of its own. You know, certainly, you know, American or British readers would would have to kind of get would have to get to grips with i think it, I, I can see it, that it would drown out um the specific story she's trying to tell i mean one, one thing about the book that i do remember is the book with the tv series they've made a very distinct decision to leave out some very early exposition in the book which gives you a slightly better handle about what is going on so it is it's far more pitched as a pitched as a mystery because you do not get a key scene with the the murderer character that the book I think I think is actually even the first, the very beginning, almost prologue section of the book. Yeah. Oh, I'm very glad they left that out because I'm, it is delicious mystery and delicious confusion. Definitely. And I'm very mm. much looking forward to unraveling it and hope they don't explain it too well or too soon. Now, the novel received the UK Crime Writers Association's Goldsborough Gold Dagger Award, and it also received the British Fantasy Society's Award for Best Horror Novel. The TV series describes itself as a thriller, these are all different. Um, it's a big old Venn diagram. Exactly. Um, but I wonder, do you think that these kind of classifications feed into what we've spoken about before on the podcast as a kind of slightly exploitative true crime genre? Do you think that it's right to market this as a thriller, given its content? This is a recurring theme, Adrian, because we've you know the, the endless appetite for stories about murdered women, yes, which fills up your Netflix, right? There's a whole. Section but also, of it. I think things like the dropout and inventing Anna. I think mm. the newsroom drama elements of mm. this kind of echo that. Yeah, but I think you know in, in this case, I don't think it's anything as cynical as what new thing can we do with a murder story. I think mm. this is about the psychology of dislocation, and it's about the psychology of what happens when reality starts to dissolve around you. I'm not going to make past judgment on the murder story because I've only seen two episodes yet and I'm not entirely sure how it all all fits together. Um, I didn't find it exploitative. I did find it genuinely, instantly, personally terrifying on behalf of people who you know are going to become victims of this guy. Uh, You just don't know why. It's it's not a who done it. It's a why done it, how done it, and in some senses, a when done it. Mm. It's a big old time twister. (laughs) And that, you know, there you go. Take a choice from my huge grab bag of genres. In that respect, I just think it's a fantastically enveloping thing. And it's making me feel that the centre of uh, gravity has definitely moved away from Netflix to Apple TV Plus because they're just putting out absolute top grade gold plated stuff at the minute. And I find myself looking through Netflix and finding the pickings rather thin Mm. these days. I think that ambiguity as well does well to reflect what it is like to have that kind of experience, blurring the boundaries between whether you're a victim or a survivor Mm -hmm. or all these quite binary definitions Mm -hmm. and a quick shout out as well to the music which i feel music's brilliant it's just lifted out of succession if we're talking about tv series that classical kind of it's got suspense i absolutely loved it the theme tune is is brilliant it 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 encapsulates the mood of the series so well yes between it and severance you've got your 10 pound a month 
value for money, definitely, <laughs> there, I would say. So the first three episodes are now live on Apple TV Plus and the rest will be released in serial over the next five weeks. Are you happy to continue watching week I'm, by week? I'm leaving the studio right now to watch it. That's how much I like it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Dilla Time is a book which argues that one of the most important musicians of the past hundred years, up there with Debussy, Stravinsky, James Brown and Lee Scratch Perry, is someone many listeners may not have heard of, unless you're a hip-hop aficionado who reads the credits and collects the mixtapes. Jay Dilla, a.k.a. JD, a.k.a. James DeWitt Yancey, graduated from making beats and loops with a cassette player pause button at home in Detroit too. Author Dan Charnas argues nothing less than creating an entirely new category of rhythm. The new time feel beyond traditional 4-4 and the African-American innovation of a swing and beyond metronomic samples too, where putting the beats in the wrong place was suddenly putting them in the right place. Jay Dilla died in 2006 of a rare blood disease, but his influence runs everywhere from collaborators like A Tribe Called Quest to clients like Janet Jackson and De La Soul to Flying Lotus, Kendrick Lamar and pretty much all of modern hip-hop. How did this happen and why doesn't the world know enough about Jay Dilla? Dan also wrote The History of the Hip-Hop Business, The Big Payback, and he's an associate professor at the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU. He's here with us now. Hello, Dan Sharnas. How are you and where are you? I am. Uh, I'm, I'm wonderful. And by the way, that was the most concise, insightful uh, <laughs> summary I've heard in this entire uh, press tour. Uh, and I'm coming to you live from uh, Harlem, New York, USA. We can hear a tiny bit of ambience there, so it's great. It's like yes. being on an actual hip-hop record. So your start exactly. of a 10, you, let's, we're talking conciseness and concision even, your start of a 10, why is Jay Diller the most important musician of the latter half of the 20th century? Take as much time as you like. Well, you know, I wouldn't say he's the most important, but <laughs> I would say he ranks among the most important, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we like to do rankings, but really what I – how I feel about Jay Dilla is that he transcends the genre whence he comes, right? Hip hop. Uh, and the reason that he transcends it is that he did literally create a third time feel in music, in popular music. And, and what do I mean by that? For the last hundred years, pop music has essentially had two different time feels. Uh, what does that mean? Well, Musicians can feel time evenly, right? Even beats. And we know what that sounds like when we hear folks counting rhythms. It's one and two and three and four. And there's even spaces between all those syllables I just uttered. And that derives mostly from European music. That's how the European common practice evolved. But uh, the American experience, mostly because of the presence of the African and African-Americans on the North American continent evolved an entirely new way of feeling time. And that is what we call a swing. And swing is uneven beats. And we know what that sounds like. It's one and two and three and four. And so swing and straight, right? 
even and uneven are the ways that we felt time for most of our popular music until the late 1990s when a beat maker named James DeWitt Yancey in Detroit in a basement on an MPC drum machine found a way to deliberately collide straight and swung rhythms and putting them in conflict with each other, micro-rhythmic conflict, that gives the music and the rhythm a bit of a herky-jerky, drunken, limping, loping feeling. It didn't even have a, na a name, really. Folks just called it a Dilla feel, but it became so influential, not just to other beat programmers, but to actual musicians who began to play traditional instruments in ways that put them in rhythmic conflict with each other. And that has been a mode of music making and a, way, a mode of feeling time that's now been with us for more than 20 years. And one of the missions of the book or the chief mission of the book is to give that time feel a real name, to put it on par with straight and swing, a time feel I call Dilla time, to put its progenitor, its, its inventor, on a par with the geniuses who helped to create the rhythms that we know, uh, Louis Armstrong or Billie Holiday or James Brown. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I've got to say, I'm not just kind of uh, blowing smoke here, but it's actually one of the most electrifying music books I've read. It's up there with Revolution in the Head that, you know, kind of makes you listen to the Beatles properly for the first time. And it's full of narrative energy. It's not just an academic treatise. There's so many amazing bits. You know, suddenly here's Eminem, here's the far side. What surprised you in your research as you were following these, this kind of, all these characters from the world of hip hop? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, the fact that you would even compare me to Revolution in the Head is so amazing to me because <laughs> it's one of my favorite books ever. And if I could even step into uh, the shadow of that book, I feel uh, somewhat accomplished. So yeah, to answer your question, there were tons of surprises uh, for me in the research of this book. There were little nerd music things that I learned along the way that uh, some of you are more musically inclined listeners might dig. For example, in researching the history of drum machines, Roger Lynn, the inventor of the LM1, which was essentially the drum machine that you hear on almost every Prince record from the 1980s, the famous Prince clap sound, which is a, the detuned clap sound of this drum machine LM1, is actually a recording of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers <laughs> in a recording studio putting their hands together. <laughs> that astounded me. In fact, when I shared an early manuscript with Questlove, he, you know, he sent me the little text back with all the, the mind-blowing emojis. So things like that were really interesting. But for me, it was finding out more about James himself, what made him tick, what his family life was like, what his personal life was like, because those stories had not been told. And I feared that if even though my main goal was musicological to talk about the mechanics of his music making, I felt if I didn't tell that story, it wouldn't be told ever. And I think it's just as important to tell James DeWitt Yancey's story as it is to tell the story of the, the greats that we know and love, whether it's Miles Davis or John Coltrane or, or Aretha Franklin, right? I, I put him in that league and I wanted to give him that same treatment. Did you find yourself asking what, exactly why it was that this kind of laggy, limping, woozy, sloppy style was so right for the times, why it did connect in that way? It's such a good question. And it was a question that I have and could not attempt 
to answer alone. So uh, one of the things that I did in this book is I actually asked that question of people who I thought might have an answer. Because if you ask Jay Dilla why his rhythm sounded that way, he would just say, oh, it's the way I move my head, right? It's the way I bob my head. But if you ask Jason Moran, a great jazz pianist, he said, you know, every generation reinvents syncopation. They reinvent a disposition towards rhythm. And this broken rhythm is indicative of this particular generation's disposition, a kind of a comfort with discomfort, if you will. I also spoke to Arthur Jaffa, the great visual artist who talked about what Dilla was doing being a part of a grand tradition of what he calls misusing the equipment. And you can hear that in other parts of hip hop with the use of auto tune. So this is Dilla's way of misusing the equipment, but in, in many cases, it's a means to express through the machine what's in him. And in making the machine sing a new song creates a rhythm that no human has ever made before. To what degree do you think the legend is is shaped by his early death? I mean, were we kind of, you know, obviously he had a lot more work to do. I think it has a lot to do with his death. I often talk about the two sides of the legacy of Jay Dilla. The one that gets the most attention is this sort of spiritual aspect to Dilla, the, the ethereal, mystical attraction and compulsion that people have for him. And then there's the scientific part, which I try to emphasize in the book. But that mystical connection has everything to do with his early demise. And if you asked, I, I think that really it's about the power of his story. That here is a guy who was literally unsung for most of his living career. And part of the accolades that he received after his death was to make up for that, to make up for those omissions. But also the lesson that his death teaches us, you know, the legend of of his passing is that in the last year of his life, even though he was in and out of the hospital, his disposition towards his work and his life was that I'm just going to keep working. I'm going to work until my hands can't move anymore. I'm going to work until the last moment. I'm going to make my last beat, you know, uh, the evening before I leave this mortal coil. That is incredibly inspiring to people to think about our own lives what our disposition might be under those circumstances to our own life's mission. Well, it's, I mean, it's genuinely one of the most electrifying music books I've read. It's a story of poverty and inspiration. And as you say, keeping at it till the very last, it's, it's absolutely studded with fantastic characters. Can't recommend it enough. Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of Jay Dilla, the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm, is out now in Swift Press Hardback. And there is a huge playlist, exhaustive playlist at the back of the book. Dan, finally, for the general listener who may not be fully familiar with Jay Dilla, what would be the one essential Jay Dilla tune that we should put on our playlist? List, for instance? And I know this is a tricky question because there's a lot. Well, I think for the neophyte, maybe you want to start where we all started, which was his first commercially released track for the far side called Runnin' from 1995. We'll stick that on the playlist. Dan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.
Finally, music. Norwegian duo Roiksop have been making deep, warm bath electronic music since the chill-out boom of the late 1990s, but they've always been a bit of a cut above, musically sophisticated, subtle, and with a darker edge than most of their contemporaries. After the huge hits that you'll remember from their first album, Melody AM, in 2001, Paul Leno, Sparks, and Epel, for instance, they took the art road for the ensuing decades, working with The Knife, Robin, and The Cream of the Norwegian Underground. They composed music for the novels of Franz Kafka, and at one point they gave up releasing albums altogether. Svein Berger and Torbjorn Brundtland have changed their mind, and the new Roiksop album, their sixth and their first in eight years, is out this weekend. It's called Profound Mysteries, and it's accompanied by a series of short films too. What will we think? This track is This Time, This Place. Adrian, this is pretty far from uh, German hip hop. What did you think? Oh, this is this is absolutely my sort of thing, though. This is science fiction music. This is in in only, only in a good way. This reminds me of a lot of music that's getting composed for um, indie computer games, and I liked it all. But I especially fell in love with a little in the two minute instrumental piece right at the beginning, "Nothing yes. But Ashes," which I am absolutely adding to my kind of writing um, writing oh, playlist. I like music that brings with it a kind of an, an emotional landscape because that's you know that gets the creative juices flowing and and there's something about that especially that first piece and how it just pulls together and builds over it uh, a length. I mean, I, I I would quite happily listen to something like that about five times as long, frankly. Well, the good news is there's a whole lot of it in the back catalogue of Rooksop if you want to dig in. But I know exactly what you mean. It, it is, and this is, I mean, I've, I'm a fan. I've loved them for 20 years. Um, and what has definitely set them apart from that universe of down-tempo chill music is a real uncommon sense of melancholy and a real musical subtlety. And the fact that that is allied to massively robust dance beats when it is called for. I just think they've got a, a far more varied palette than almost anybody of, of, of that vintage. It's definitely a record of moods. When one of the singles, Impossible, came out, they said, as human beings, what we don't know vastly overshadows what we do know. As teenagers, we would discuss our own fascination and preoccupation with the infinite and the impossible, the most profound mysteries of life. And then they went on to write books under the name Adrian Tchaikovsky because they've been <laughs> very much on your wavelength, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I really loved it. It's it's definitely the sort of the sort of thing I I like to listen to. And um, that track that we played this time, this place is actually quite the typical Roiksop club banger, very clipped and disciplined. Mm. But there's a lot of restrained tension in there. Do you have a rave past at all, Adrian? I do not. <laughs> I, I I had a very uh, a very dull and blameless um, a bl- blameless youth. Ah, well, nobody's perfect. What was in your, uh, in, in your in the soundtrack of your youth? I sort of stopped listening to uh, m- sort of modern popular music about mid to late 80s. And then it started filtering back in. So when, when I got to university, obviously everyone is exchanging mixtapes and so forth. So I just, I picked up this very weird scattershot of 
whatever my friends at the time were listening to, much of which was things that everyone else had heard of, but I was just was completely new to me. Marillion, they sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I just had this very weird, eclectic, almost random acquisition of tracks. And then more recently, I kind of tend to go on YouTube deep dives and just go from kind of video to video and then go off and buy the actual whatever it is that, that st- stuck with me afterwards. The short films that they've made for this album, Roiksop, uh, or rather a bunch of directors have made for them, are really worth seeing. They have a kind of combination of, yes, there's a heavy science fiction kind of undertone to it, but also kind of absurdist, strange sort of metaphorical videos. One features a man who is tied to a gigantic yo-yo which keeps chasing him and wrapping him up and running him over. And then he t- and it's, it's done incredibly in, in a kind of quarry wasteland moonscape. So it's just a man in a nowhere landscape being chased by a giant yo-yo. You may take this as a metaphor for something like that. I certainly did. Again, strong identify. They're more than pop videos. They're little mini artworks. We're going to put, we'll put the link to them in, in the show notes. I think listeners would really enjoy it. Yelena, what did you think of uh, Roiksop's Profound Mysteries? Yeah, I'm not typically one for instrumental electronic music. And when I listen to synths, because I'm also, if not an actual child of the 80s, then a spiritual one, I like them as cool mm. as possible, rather than being super warm. But I really, really enjoyed this. And I think I'm very interested in the live and the production element of their music, the videos, because a lot of it actually reminded me quite a lot of public service broadcasting Mm -hmm. probably one of my favorite gigs that i went to last year so i i know that they're quite well known for their live performances too and i'd be really interested to see them play out on a stage perhaps with some very arty production of these videos well the last time i went there was a lot of abstract shapes and a lot of lasers and i have to say i felt very satisfied as a customer i've heard rumors (laughs) that in some of their performances they crack out the astronaut suit and that's the kind of thing i'm there for well everybody should be wearing an astronaut suit now and again and they've described this as an expanded creative universe and prodigious conceptual project uh, each trap is a, each track is accompanied by a piece of abstract physical design which may they look like machines but you're not sure entirely what they do so it may be a cassette recorder with feathers or an engine that doesn't make sense or like uh you know what appears to be a phone made out of a lobster claw and they have a quite Bjorkian feel to them. I'm not sure they actually are physical or they're just kind of computer-assisted design produced to such a level of proficiency that they seem real mm. but it connects to the music in a way I'm not entirely sure makes sense but feels good because it doesn't make sense if you see what I mean. Well the phone with the lobster claw is typical British surrealism. It is typical British surrealism but I mean the other stuff is kind of it's more it's 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 like industrial surrealism. Yes. You know very kind of oblique to the music. I think that's something I really am interested in in their biography because I was actually familiar with some of their songs through different adverts. So So Easy was on the T-Mobile advert in the early noughties. You must have known about like one when that came out. <laughs> I have to point you out there on my dad's theory of history, which is that he only knows things that happened after he was born. I am capable of knowing things that happened in my early years through things like the internet. Right. But yes, So Easy is on the T-Mobile advert. And Apple was used by Apple for their Mac OS X Panther system. Apple, Apple. Yeah, Yeah, Apple, Mm. Apple. So... I find that playoff between industrial electronic music and actually being used in industries yes. quite cool with them. There you go. It's all thematically correct, I mm. suppose. Uh, I think it's um, a full set of thumbs up, isn't it? Well done, Roiksop. Before- 
before we go, one more piece of music to draw your attention to. Russia's war on Ukraine continues to horrify the world and many musicians have done what they can to help. Key among them are the Ukrainians, the Leeds band, who are an offshoot of the wedding present and have since played Ukrainian-style music around the world. You may recall them covering four songs by the Smiths some many years ago, including Koroleva Nepolema, The Queen Is Dead. Now, with original Public Image Limited bassist Jar Wobble, and former Susie and the Banshees guitarist John Klein, the Ukrainians have recorded the Ukrainian national anthem in dub. It's out now on Bandcamp and all digital services. Bandcamp is the best one, of course. Proceeds go to two refugee charities, the Disasters Emergency Committee Ukraine Humanitarian Appeal and the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain's Help Ukraine Emergency Appeal. We urge you to buy one. We're not going to put it on the playlist. You can get your hand in your pockets. But here it is, in dub, the national anthem of Ukraine. the end of the podcast which means it's time for closing time chatter what will our slightly smaller than usual panel be talking about as they drink from a pint glass that suddenly turns into a schooner adrian what's your chatter today i see that a book called rosebud by the multimedia author paul cornell is out this week this is the book i was lucky enough to get an early uh, early glimpse at um, when it was uh, doing the rounds i think it even has a quote of mine on it this is a phenomenal book it's a completely unique experience. It, the ostensible setup is it's a first contact situation with aliens, except the us who is doing the first contact is a sort of digital ship of obsolete virtual personalities who have been hived off into this fairly unenviable exploration task. Um, and because they are all sort of effectively classes of people who have been excised from the the human society that has arisen in this future. It's a very, very sort of sharp piece of social commentary, as well as a phenomenal piece of science fiction. And at the same time, it's incredibly funny. I'm a huge fan of Paul Cornell. He writes brilliant comics. He wrote some of the best uh, new series Doctor Who episodes in the early days. He wrote Father's Day, where Rose goes to try and find her dad with disastrous consequences. And he wrote The Family of Blood, which is the one where the uh, set just before the First World War, where the Doctor becomes a human being. They're just two of the the absolute best Doctor Who's. And he, you know, he, I think he wrote Captain Britain for a while. He's a bit of a genius, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I should be getting that. I didn't even know it existed. I like the idea that human culture's first contact with an alien race is carried out basically by the paperclip from Microsoft Word, <laughs> just a kind of a random digital artifact. It is very much that kind of thing. So some some of the crew are. Just entirely. So one of one of the crew, for example, is a computer game character um, from a kind of a Metroidvania style computer game, who's just been sort of given a virtual existence. And others of the crew are actual people who were kind of deemed undesirable and sort of just sort of severed and severed and cast off. It's really, it's quite a unique book. It really is. This sounds right up my street. 
Andrew, what's yours? While we're talking about Ukraine, I just wanted to mention um, the Ukrainian Supreme Court Judge Ivan Mishchenko, who has left the bench uh, to fight on the front line. I hope he's still in good shape. The reason I wanted to mention him is because his comrades have given him a nickname because he's a judge. They're referring to him as Judge Dredd on the front line. So, And that's actually painted on his uh, bulletproof armour. It just says Dread. And I thought the idea that one of my old comics heroes has become a hero for the Ukrainian resistance in this horribly real war it struck a chord in me. And uh, I, hope that he, I hope that he is successful in what he's doing. But the idea that he's got a nickname from an old comics character that I love just illustrates the madness of the world that we're in. How about yours? I've been hammering a record called Over Fields and Mountains by an artist called Branko Mataya, and it's actually a re-release. Basically, uh, an American music producer was digging through an old record store and he found something called Traditional and Folk Songs of Yugoslavia, which uh, was a a self-released single back in the 70s and 80s. And basically, I'd never heard of this guy, Branko Mataya, before, but he is the most experimental Yugoslav musician I've perhaps ever come across. His music is modern, it's hauntingly overdubbed, it's almost like Yugoslavian bluegrass, that's how I've been dubbing it to people. And there's a fantastic profile of him in The Guardian that really exposes his genuine love for music. This is a guy who, like I said, self-financed his own records, went on to make guitars for Johnny Cash and had an amazing journey all across Europe after the Second World War. And it comes off the back of a podcast I did recently for one of our friend of the podcast podcasts, let's call them Remembering Yugoslavia, about what it means to identify with the idea of Yugoslavia when you were born temporally and geographically completely aside from it. And if it's listening to Yugoslav Bluegrass, then that's how I'm doing it at the moment. And I can testify this is actually a really great record. It sounds <laughs> like it's not just Yelena and their Yugoslavian obsessions again. It is brilliant in its own right. It sounds like Joe Meek making a Bluegrass record with Lee Perry. And it is quite an astonishing, the texture is like nothing else. We'll put a track onto the playlist, have a listen and have a listen to the rest of the whole album. It is really good. And that is the end of the show. Thank you to Adrian Tchaikovsky. New book, Eyes of the Void, out this very week, possibly out this very day. Where should prospective readers start with your stuff? I mean, I've banged on about Children of Time. What do you, th- what do you think people should have their jump off point? Um, I'm going to say... The one I'm actually proudest of, I think, science fiction-wise, is still Dogs of War, which is certainly one of my lesser-known ones. But that is, I think, I, the the characters and the science fiction concepts balance most perfectly in that one of all the stuff I've written. So that's a good, that's a good start. There you go. Treat yourselves. Once you start, you won't be able to stop. Thank you for joining us. It's been great talking to you. Well, thank you very much for having me on. And thanks to producer Alex Reese and assistant producer Alina Ganatra. We'll be back next week. Have a great bank holiday weekend. Bye all. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison and Yelna Sofronievich. It was produced by me, Alex Reese, head arachnid at Podmasters. That's how I edit so fast. I've got loads of arms. Assistant production by Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh,